Chapter Seven of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Seven: The Revelations of a Retired Colonel. Fenton's orders were, when the Cairo business should be finished, to go slowly up the Nile in native dress and to get at the truth of certain rumours which had disturbed officialdom at Cairo. At Dendera, Luxor, and two or three other places there had been incidents, small but troublesome. English sightseers had complained of being hustled, and even insulted, by the inhabitants of several river-towns, and it was important to find out whether the Egyptians or the foreigners had been more to blame, whether there were real symptoms of sedition, as reported, or whether the young men of the suspected places had merely resented with roughness some discourtesy of tactless tourists. Fenton had seized upon the idea that, as Egyptian lecturer and conductor, a sort of super-dragoman, on board Lark's Nile boat, he might find a plausible pretext for his secret errand. "'Why do you travel?' would be the question he must expect from suspicious leaders of any plot that might be hatching, if he journeyed from one Nile village to another without the excuse of business. As a glorified conductor of a pleasure trip for a party of tourists, his excuse would be ready-made for him. But he had been far from sure that I would fall in with Sir Marcus Lark's plan, despite the bribe. He had wanted me to hear the whole story, the whole project, from Sir Marcus's own lips, and in his uncertainty of the result he had thought of Miss Gilder as an attractive victim. There she was, as he had said, presented to him by Providence. If I should pour scorn upon the lark's suggestion, he might find it worth while to guide the gilded girl and her friends on their Nile pilgrimage. He left the question for me, and I decided to kill as many birds as possible with one stone. The name of the yacht was in itself an incentive. Candace, Queen of Meroe, our Meroe. She seemed to call, and to promise good luck. We would accept Lark's terms, and enter his service, in return for a written agreement to hand over his ill-got digging rights to us, whether or no we turned out to be satisfactory as guides. We could do but our best, and at all events we should earn the reward which we had looked upon as ours already. Anthony would play his double part, serving the interests of government and those of Sir Marcus Lark. As for Monty Gilder, why shouldn't she and her party become Lark's passengers? The only reason against this inspiration, as Sir Marcus would have called it, lay in the fact that Monny wished to engage a private dahabiyah. When she wished for a thing, it appeared that only a miracle or a cataclysm could induce her to give it up for something else suggested by an outsider. But when I mentioned this peculiarity to Fenton, he was fired to punish the girl by forcing her compliance with our will. She had treated him like a servant. She looked upon a man, supposedly of Egyptian blood, even though of princely birth, somewhat as she looked upon an American nigger. True, Anthony Fenton had in his veins but a very few such drops. On his father's side he was all English, and his mother had been more than two-thirds Greek and Italian. Nevertheless, this spoilt girl had struck a blow at the pride which went ever walking about the world with a chip lightly poised on its shoulder. Anthony had no desire to poach on my preserves. At the same time he yearned to show Miss Gilder that he could be her master, not her servant. Once Anthony and I had made up our minds, everything else arranged itself with lightning speed. Sir Marcus, rejoicing in his ill-got conquest of us, broke to me the news that I must go by the first ship to Piraeus, 
to meet the Candace and head off the recalcitrant band of passengers. He flattered me by thinking that, if I took the place of Colonel Corcoran as conductor, they would abandon their plot to desert the yacht at Alexandria. It was, according to Lark's secret information, only the smart and would-be smart set who had combined to spring this mine upon the management. The rest grumbled no more than it was normal for all pleasure pilgrims to grumble, and, as roughly speaking, the contented travellers were all going on to Palestine after a week's wild sightseeing in Cairo, the colonel might be allowed to continue his voyage without the interruption of a row. "'I should have had enough common sense at the start,' growled Sir Marcus with crude candour, "'to engage a lord for the smart set and a parson for the earnest inquirers. There's a world of difference in catering for a set and a flock. The art is to know it and how to do it. Now I've secured you, I'm all right with the S.S., and thanks be I've a young reformed missionary on board to shepherd the flock. Now the Reverend Watts will come in handy, herding his sheep through Palestine, while the Colonel swaggers and fancies he's bossing the show. It's the Egypt lot I worry about, girls out for dukes, and dukes out for dollars. Not that there's a darned duke on board, but there are some who think that they outduke the dukes, and it's our business to humor em. You just duff all you want, Lord Ernest, and they'll swallow anything you do, like honey. Don't bother about a line of conduct, only be genial. Murmur soft nothings to the women, flirt but don't have favorites. Don't be too political with the men, work in plenty of anecdotes about your swell relations. I replied that I could confidently promise geniality, except if seasick, but Sir Marcus implored me at all costs not to be seasick. That was the one thing I must not be. My whole time between the Piraeus and Alexandria, on board the Candace, must be spent in ingratiating myself with the sulky passengers, and obliterating from their memories the crimes of Colonel Corcoran. In Sir Marcus's opinion my future charges had taken passage on the Candace, and would go up the Nile, not to see sights, but to be seen doing the right things. According to him, not two out of twenty cared tuppence for Egypt, but wished to talk about it in sparkling style at home. My friend Captain Fenton and I must make it sparkle. Sir Marcus had resigned himself to the fact that one of his trump cards, Anthony, could not be produced until the arrival in Cairo of the troop, and that even then the name of Fenton must not be used as an attraction. Lark felt confident that I was good enough card to make his hand worth playing, and in spite of the half-contemptuous amusement with which I regarded the whole scheme, I couldn't help being on my mettle. I found myself wanting to succeed, wanting to please the big, common man whom a few hours ago I had been cursing. I had to start for Greece the net after our decision. Meanwhile, I was anxious to explain the unexplainable to Bridget and Monny, and secure the party for Sir Marcus Lark's alleged dahabia, which turned out to be one of Cook's old boats, bought and newly decorated. Both my tasks would be difficult. I had to hide the secret reason for selling myself to the financier, and at the same time keep the respect of the ladies. As for inducing Miss Gilder to give up her dream of a private dahabia, I foresaw that it would be like persuading the youngest lioness in the Cairo Zoo to surrender her cherished wooden ball. But I began by giving Monny a present, a fine old turban-box of rare red tortoiseshell inlaid with mother-of-pearl, which I found at an antiquary's. In the silk-lined box reposed a green turban, and that green turban told its own story. Miss Gilder flushed with pleasure at sight of it. "'I've won my bet!' she exclaimed. "'Yes,' said I, to my astonishment. "'The man consents. 
He's a great prize, knows Cairo and Upper Egypt like a book, but you'll have to surrender him when you go on the Nile. In her haste to know why, Monny forgot to ask how I had obtained the green turban, and for this I was glad, because it was only the second-best headgear of my smart friend the Haji. In explaining that the distinguished Egyptian had been engaged by Sir Marcus Lark, I slipped in a word about my own part in the trip, describing it as an ideal rest-cure for a budding diplomat on sick-leave. I praised the boat and spoke of the fun on board. I regretted Miss Gilder's preference for a private dahabiyah, so obvious, so millionary. Still, I added, every one to his taste, and anyhow, no doubt all the best cabins on the enchantress Isis were taken. That was the entering wedge, the mention of an obstacle to overcome. Miss Gilder looked thoughtful, though she kept silence, and next day, when making my adieus before starting for Alexandria, she flung out a careless question. When would the enchantress Isis leave Cairo? How many passengers would she carry? Would there be a rush at the temples, or would there be plenty of time for proper sightseeing? And was I sure that all the nicest cabins were engaged? No, I was not sure. I could inquire. I tried not to look triumphant, but I must have darted out a ray, because Monny withdrew into her shell. She had inquired out of curiosity, she explained. I had told such stories about the enchantress Isis that she would like to see her. Perhaps Antoun Effendi could get permission for a visit to the boat. In this state I had to leave affairs and start for the Piraeus, where I must await the return of the tourists from Athens. I had two days at sea in which to work up an agony of apprehension, and I could have thanked heaven when, arriving on board the big white yacht, I found that I was ahead of the passengers. I was expected, however, and a deck cabin was ready for my occupation. I hoped that I had not turned out my rival from the room, but dared not question the steward. He seemed to know all about me, nevertheless, and said that my name had been posted up as conductor of the Nile party. If I may take the liberty of mentioning it, my lord, he added, it has made a very good impression. We were to steam for Alexandria the moment the passengers arrived in the special train, having had three days of sightseeing in Athens, and I just got my possessions stowed away when a wave of clattering voices broke over the ship. My heart gave a jump, as a soldier's must, when called to fight on an empty stomach at dawn, on a winter's morning. What ought I to do? How was I to make the acquaintance of my future charges? Must it be en masse, or could it be done singly? I had neglected to ask Sir Marcus what would be expected of me, and I was in a worse funk than a new boy on his first day at school. Soon it would be dinner-time. I wished that I were ill, but I remembered that the one thing I must not do was to be seasick. Already the ship was beginning to move out of the Greek harbor, or I should have been tempted to get a telegram calling me home. Even the mountain of the Golden Pyramid seemed not too great a sacrifice to make, but it was too late to make it, and someone was knocking at my door. I opened it with such courage as I had, and the instant I set eyes on the man I knew that he was Colonel Corcoran. He was born to be a retired colonel. What came before the retiring could have been but a prelude. A stout figure of middle height, red face, veined on cheeks and nose, pale blue eyes which looked as if they had faded in the wash, purple moustache and eyebrows, close-cropped gray hair, a double chin clamoring for extra collar space, and a bridge player's expression. This was the rival whose place I had virtually, though not officially, usurped. I was prepared to hear him his viper between his teeth, as characters in melodramatic serials do to perfection, 
their front teeth having doubtless been designed for such purposes. But his look seemed to denote pity rather than hatred. So might a prison warder regard a condemned man in coming to announce the hour of execution. "'Lord Ernest Burrow,' said he, in a slightly hoarse voice, "'I am Colonel Corcoran. Delighted to meet you. I've met your brother, Lord Kalina. Dare say he wouldn't remember me. I don't think I can begin better than by thanking you for coming to take over my job.' "'Oh, I haven't done that,' I hastened to protest, as he sat fatly down in a chair I pushed forward. "'As I understand, I'm to take a few people off your hands, and the hands of your assistant, Mr. Kruger, so that you can go to Palestine instead of leaving that important excursion entirely to the chaplain, Mr. Watts.' Colonel Corcoran laughed. "'Thank you for trying to save my feelings,' said he, "'but I assure you they're not hurt. I'm sincerely delighted to see you for my own sake.' For yours, well, that's another pair of shoes. My dear fellow, I wonder if you've the smallest idea what you're in for. In for? I echoed. Yes, I'm saying this as a friend. Don't think I'm jealous. Lord, no. I look on you as a deliverer. And don't think I want to frighten you. It isn't that. But I feel it's my duty to prepare you. I might have got on better if there'd been someone to do the same by me. There wasn't. Kruger, my so-called assistant, is a spy. At best, he's a mere accountant, not supposed to look after the passengers socially. I gather that he was some secretary of Lark's. Beware of him. He writes to Lark from every port. As for the passengers, the saintly lot are bad enough. Yet it's only the food and the cabins and the attendants they grumble about. I'm shunted off the worldly lot onto them in future. But at their worst, there'll be a rest cure, and Lark has the decency not to reduce my screw. It's the worldly lot that's going to make you curse the day you were born. He wanted me to speak or groan, but I maintained a stricken silence, to which I gave some illusion of dignity. After a disappointed pause, he went on, You'd better know something about these people, beasts every one of them, young or old, some beastly common beasts, but all beastly rich, except those that are beastly poor and on the make, to marry their daughters or cadge for smart friends. Lark was bidding for swells and got snobs. Thinks his silly title will carry weight in society as it does in the city. Lark pie, we're called, I hear. I call us a pretty kettle of fish. The girls are the worst of the caboodle, though some of them aren't bad-looking. You won't believe the trouble I've had with the creatures till you begin to get the same yourself. What kind of trouble? I inquired gingerly. Every kind a woman can make. Apart from food troubles, they think they're not being entertained enough on board— think I ought to get up more dances, tango teas, I suppose, don't like the way I organize games, are mad because they can't have music at meals, which they can't because the band's all stewards, blame me because the men don't make love to them, or because they do. And at the hotels where we go on shore, it's Hades. Naturally, the people staying in the hotels resent us. They look on us as a menagerie, a rabble. So we are, at least they are, I don't count myself in with them." What can I do? I'm not omnipotent. Perhaps you are. Anyhow, they're prepared to believe it, for you're a new broom, a broom with a fine handle. I'm only a poor colonel with a few medals given by my country for services that were appreciated. You're brother to a marquise. You paint a lurid picture, I said, when he stopped for breath. I couldn't paint it lurider than it is. But you'll have to find out for yourself. It won't be so bad while you're a novelty. Don't say I haven't warned you. And, oh, by the way, I've announced that you're to be presented to the passengers at dinner tonight, on coming in, before the soup is served. 
"'As a sort of hors d'oeuvre, I suppose,' I murmured weakly. Colonel Corcoran stared without a smile. "'As the titled conductor of the Egypt tour,' he explained to my dull intelligence with a slight sneer. "'So will you please be in the dining saloon just before the bugle blows the beasts in? I have to introduce you in a short speech. It's all I can do except say, God help you. But I don't see how he can. I suppose your friend Sir Marcus told you that you would be expected to deliver a lecture on Egypt tonight at the dinner-table? After you've finished your dinner, of course. I hope the cracking and crunching of nuts doesn't disturb you much. I confess I've found it getting on my nerves.' I was aghast. My mind jumped to the wild thought of eating soup, in order to froth at the mouth and simulate a fit. It seemed my only way of escape, and after that the deluge. But my rival was so reveling in the mental havoc he had wrought that I rallied, replying that, as Sir Marcus had not broken the news to me, I didn't see how it would be possible to deliver a lecture. "'Aren't you up on Egypt?' the Colonel asked, pityingly. "'Neither am I, though I've sweated over Bedeker with my head in wet towels, when I wanted to be at Bridge.' but I thought that was the excuse for engaging you, that and your title, of course, which is going to make you popular. As fast as I fag up the names of those beastly Egyptian gods or kings and queens, they run out of my brains like water out of a sieve. Or if I do contrive to remember any by chance together with their dates, which is almost more than can be expected of the human intellect, why, I find that I pronounce them wrong, or they're spelled another way in the next book. But I suppose you know Egypt— its damned history comes natural as breathing. How I wished it did! And how different was this new program from the one outlined by Sir Marcus! Just to be genial and flirt with the girls. My recollections of Egypt are from some time ago, I admitted, to give a lecture at half an hour's notice. In justice to yourself, I'm afraid you'll have to, the Colonel persisted. It's been announced that you will give the lecture, and the Egypt lot are looking forward to it as the animals in a zoo look forward to their food. If they're defrauded, they'll think you're a slacker, and that you're presuming on your title. I shouldn't like that, my anguish racked out of me. I fancied you wouldn't, but what's to be done? Am I to announce when I introduce you that your knowledge of Egypt isn't equal to the strain? I took an instant for reflection. I knew that he was hoping I might throw myself on his mercy, or else that I would speak and fail, but I determined to do neither. On second thoughts, I may be able to give some kind of a powwow, I replied. Colonel Corcoran's face fell. "'That's all right, then,' he exclaimed, getting to his feet. "'Well, I must be off. Will you have a cocktail?' "'No, thanks,' said I. "'I think I can get on without it.' He was at the door. "'Kind of hash of gods and goddesses with a peppering of kings and queens, and mixed sauce of history and legend. That's what's needed,' were his farewell words. Then he shut the door, and I tore my watch from the pocket of my waistcoat. I had twenty-eight minutes in which to repair the said hash with its seasoning and sauce, and the bugle was inviting my judges to dress for the Inquisition. End of chapter 7